Hello and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. I am a medical oncologist and I specialize in treating women with breast and gynecologic cancer. I started this podcast to share the journeys and experiences of women who are living with cancer. Every week, I bring you stories of incredible women who are all at different stages of their cancer journey. We will talk about anything and everything related to the cancer experience. These women will share with you how cancer has affected them and how they are living life despite it. The information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as any medical advice as each patient has a different treatment and experience. It is meant to create a dialogue. Any personal medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Cancer brings normal life to a halt. It creates an interlude. Let's talk about it. Today, my guest is Bridget Hopkins. Bridget was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was 35 years old. On today's episode, she talks about finding out she is a BRCA2 mutation carrier, how that affected her choice for treatment, her decision to have a mastectomy with reconstruction, her decision about choosing to do or not do chemotherapy, her subsequent treatment choices, and the effect that cancer has had on her body image, her employment, her job, and life in general. Welcome, Bridget. So excited to have you join me today. Hi, thanks for having me. You want to talk about how you first found out you were diagnosed with breast cancer? Sure. So um, I guess I'll start off with um, I'm currently uh, 36. I was um, 35 years old um, when I was diagnosed. I was diagnosed with um, stage 2 invasive ductal carcinoma. And I do carry the BRCA2 gene, which I was completely unaware of until this whole entire journey. Um, Basically, um, there's really no specific uh, first-line relatives with breast cancer. Um, My father did have colon cancer, and he was in remission for five years. Um, He is deceased now. He passed away at the age of 54 from a heart attack. Um, It was a beautiful sunny afternoon in September, and um, my fiancé, Kevin, and I, um, I've been asking for, we have a really large overgrown holly tree in our backyard, and I had wanted it down for uh, probably a couple of years. So finally, um, again, it was so beautiful outside, we decided that was going to be our project for the day. Um, of course I didn't go anywhere near the chainsaw and, um, basically he took care of, you know, cutting down all the limbs and I carried all the branches up to the curb. Um, and it was a really big, big, obnoxious holly tree. And, um, so after, um, you know, eight hours of grueling, you know, uh, physical labor, which I'm not used to doing, I, um, him and I went to my, uh, mother's pool and I jumped in the pool and my bathing suit top had fallen down. And I, when I went to lift it, that's when I felt a um, assist, I thought. And he immediately looked at me and, and he said, what is your face? And I was like, oh, I, I don't know. And um, I was concerned, obviously, and he could see that look. And, um, you know, basically, I'm like, I don't know. I just feel something that I've never felt before. It's, it's definitely a cyst because um, I am in the medical field. I'm a nurse practitioner. And, um, you know, again, it was very superficial. Um, I could feel it. It was, you know, had all the kind of qualities that you would think of a cyst. And um, we came home that night. I called the gynecologist's office because it was still at that time around 5 p.m. They were able to get me in the next day. And I, uh, again, a little worried, not really. Um, You know, again, knowing there's no strong family history of breast cancer. 
And um, him and I went to the gynecologist the next morning. And even my gynecologist had said, you know, statistically speaking, this shouldn't be a malignancy. But because we feel something, we're definitely going to have to send you for imaging. Um, that was a Friday. And um, I was able to luckily schedule a mammogram and ultrasound for the following Tuesday, which was um, uh, September 26th. Um, I didn't really want to say much to any of my friends or family. I kind of kept it between Kevin and I, especially because my mom had just been at a funeral. My mom's also a nurse, and one of her uh, fellow nurse friends um, uh, had just buried her daughter that Monday from breast cancer, who was also in my age range. And previous to that, there was another uh, fellow nurse friend of hers who um, lost her daughter to breast cancer at the age of, I think it was 33. So it was definitely something I didn't want to... Um, make a big deal out of until I had confirmation that it certainly sure was a cyst. At the mammogram, um, you know, I went back and, and again, I didn't think anything really of it. Um, they did the imaging and um, the ultrasound tech did, um, they did identify a spot and the ultrasound tech, um, you know, performed her ultrasound and the radiologist came in and said, is that your husband out in the waiting room? And I said, yes. Obviously, he's my fiance, but, you know, basically my husband. And I said, um, yes. And right when he said that, I just was like, oh, God, this can't be good. Because why? I know. Why would he want him in the room with me? So um, he did. He went and he brought Kevin back and he discussed um, the findings. And basically, at that point, the preliminary results were um, a two-centimeter solid mass. Um, I didn't really ask more questions because I know his answer was going to be it has to be biopsied, so I can't give you any definitive answers. And again, I didn't really want to spark too many, you know, crazy ideas. So um, luckily I was able to schedule the biopsy. Um, again, I had the mammogram on Tuesday. I was able to schedule the biopsy for Thursday in the midday of Wednesday. I had gotten the uh, final report of the mammogram. And it was um, BIRAD category five, or I'm sorry, it was a four actually at that point, um, which is uh, highly suspicious for a malignancy. So right then and there, I basically knew, um, you know, Thursday morning, I went for the biopsy at uh, 8 a.m. I had to work at 9 a.m. I had to do a 12-hour shift that day. And, you know, Kevin took me for the biopsy. And the whole entire time I was in the biopsy, I was I was in hysterical. And... Um, the radiologist, you know, he he wasn't sugarcoating it. He knew what I knew, and and I said, I know you're going in there and you're you're taking out a sample of the cancer that's in there. And he had such excellent bedside manner. Um, you know, I was still hysterical, <laughs> and uh, even afterwards, you know, he had gotten a washcloth for my face because he knew I had to go to work right afterwards, and gave me a hug. I mean, it was just really genuine, and um, I was happy that that was one of my um, first encounters for the difficult journey of the many encounters of the uh, providers that I've um, had to deal with. That biopsy was done on Thursday and Monday morning he called to tell me that I had invasive ductal carcinoma. When they called you, what was your reaction? It, it, I, I should say that I wasn't surprised. Um, I was basically waiting for the phone to ring for the doctor to tell me that I had cancer. So it was just more of um, kind of putting a... Um, you know, confirmation on what I had already known and then um, thinking about how, how was I going to move forward with, you know, telling everybody, um, especially my mom. 
um, and the rest of the family and, and friends. And how did you tell them? So basically, um, again, Monday, when I, I knew I was going to be getting the phone call from the interventional radiologist, I actually, um, I knew the best um, idea for telling my mom would be to have her sisters here. And, um, you know, obviously, again, my father's deceased. So, um, you know, she's so close with her two sisters, as, as am I. And um, so what, what I had said, and, and it was awful, but I thought about it over the weekend. And I figured I would tell them maybe if they could come over here. And um, on Monday night, I was off and we could do uh, dinner and talk about uh, centerpieces for the wedding because um, we were uh, engaged and getting married. And there was, you know, obviously that was just a whole hoax. There was you know, centerpieces being discussed that night. So basically they came over. We were, you know, just kind of, you know, sitting around chit-chatting. And finally I was like, I have to tell you guys something. And um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, they were floored. I mean, um, obviously they weren't expecting to hear that. My mom took it really hard um, in the beginning. And, um, you know, and then she was like a rock star the, the rest of the way through, like, you know. No falling down. We're going to get through this. So you told them they're dealing with it. You're dealing with it. Kind of what happened next? How did you decide which breast surgeon to see? Like, did who guided you through that process? Right. So, um, so that was actually um, interesting. That, um, and I feel like it's the a theme um, with uh, some of the uh, patients that you've actually interviewed. Um, the delay in trying to get an appointment. So basically, um, you know, obviously I was diagnosed on October 2nd and, you know, October 3rd after, you know, I woke up after not sleeping that well, I uh, wanted to start calling around to um, obviously make an appointment with a breast surgeon. And it was extremely difficult. Um, for example, again, that was October 2nd, or I'm sorry, October 3rd, I was making the phone calls. The first phone call I wanted uh, was over at uh, University of Pennsylvania. And they weren't able to see me until November 20th. I explained the situation that I'm, you know, 35 years old. I was just newly diagnosed with cancer. And they, that was their first available appointment, which I couldn't believe. Um, so then I actually called uh, Cooper because I'd heard good things about Cooper, MD Anderson. And when I called there, they again gave me, I think it was about a two to three week wait to see a breast surgeon. And it was just getting really frustrating. I was like, this is this is unbelievable. Um, and I mean, being in the medical field, um, I felt like I was using, you know, the uh, explaining my situation to the fullest extent. Um, and there was still no budge on getting the appointments. Luckily, my mom um, is an OR nurse and she was able to reach out to one of her friends whose friend of a friend uh, was able to see me, breast surgeon at Fox Chase. Which was great because at least it was, I wasn't, she doesn't operate anymore, this surgeon, but at least I was able to get an explanation. And again, I'm in the medical field. Um, I'm a family nurse practitioner. So um, all these words, invasive ductal carcinoma, HER2, triple negative, these are all words that, and terminology that I'm not familiar with. So being able to sit with this physician, breast surgeon at Fox Chase, just to help me calm my nerves and this is likely what's going to happen with you. And she was able to explain that I had one of the most common forms of cancer. Um, and she really relaxed me by knowing that 
it was going to be a, a long period. Um, a lot of things still had to go into effect, more testing and, and other things. Then, obviously, um, I was able to see I, um, a breast surgeon over at uh, University of Pennsylvania, and I really, really liked him and felt comfortable with him and um, stayed with my treatment there. And what treatment did you end up having? I ended up, um, you know, through again, through this whole process, they um, did the genetic testing, um, which, to be honest with you, I was completely unfamiliar with. When they had mentioned genetic counseling at one of the first visits, I thought, they were um, talking about uh, more for like a fertility and family planning genetic counseling. I didn't realize that it was they were going to, you know, take my saliva and, you know, figure out what kind of any type of gene uh, defects I had, which again, I, I ended up being um, BRCA2. They also tested, obviously, my mother's still living, so they were able to test her and she's negative. Um, so we presume that the genes from my father. What is your reaction among, you know, when you find out about the BRCA mutation? Because it's not only at this point that you have breast cancer, is that now you are at very increased risk of ovarian cancer as well. Right, right. Having the BRCA2 um, kind of put some answers, I suppose you could say, on why I did get breast cancer. Um, looking back, I mean, obviously, I do have a strong family history of cancer, uh, both my Grandmothers uh, passed away from pancreatic cancer. My grandfather had prostate cancer. My mom had kidney cancer. My dad had colon cancer. So it kind of puts um, the breast cancer diagnosis a little bit easier, I suppose, knowing that I have this mutation. And with the oophrectomy that I'll have to get, um, obviously the ovaries will be the next affected by the age of 40. Finding out you have a BRCA gene mutation, your increased risk of ovarian cancer, and as a young woman, that obviously is gonna raise some questions about fertility and children and child rearing. So can you talk a little bit about how you approach that? Sure, and um, basically it was kind of obviously a really bad storm I went through starting obviously on uh, October 2nd. Um, I didn't realize how many factors would go into this whole entire diagnosis of breast cancer. Um, having the BRCA gene, obviously, um, there is a risk of having ovarian cancer. Um, so the recommendations are having your ovaries removed by the age of 40. Kevin and I were supposed to actually um, get married. Uh, we were getting married down in Cape May, and we ended up postponing everything because of the situation that I was in. But still, I mean, we still have family planning that we're, we talk about. And what I had to do was fertility, you know, try for egg retrievals because, um, you know, with me, not um, they don't want the increased surge of any kind of estrogen or progesterone. We ended up going through uh, fertility retrievals and luckily um, we're successful. The first time, not so much. And, and that's um, there's a lot to it um, for those that aren't familiar with fertility. It's basically every day injections and every other day going over for blood work and ultrasound. And um, again, the first time was a complete failure. Um, and the second time we did do it, um, everything worked out well. So uh, another thing that I wasn't aware of with the type of cancer I had, um, the oncologist recommended that I not carry, suggested that I have a surrogate. And that was also a whole nother um, complete shock to me. But um, I think I feel like I take news and I just, oh, okay, so what do I have to do now? And um, 
try to find the, you know, what, what's going to be the next step. And, and I have that answer. Um, luckily my best friend, Sally, who I've known since three, um, is willing to carry for me. So, um, when that time occurs, um, she's again, willing to carry and she has two beautiful children. Actually, one of them is Bridget, her uh, baby daughter. And, um, you know, so I mean, I have the answer to that solution. It's not, um, again, none of this is ideal, but I feel like um, when you're given a problem, you have to find a solution. I'm finding the solutions as I have to go along. So I think that's an amazing way of handling it. And I want to go back in a little bit to your choice of mastectomy and reconstruction. But just as an aside, how do you approach someone and ask them to be your surrogate? Because I think that's you're not the only person who struggles with that. Um, I was very fortunate, actually. I have wonderful, wonderful um, friends. And um, I'm fortunate enough that I, I still have my childhood friends. And again, I, I explained that Sally is um, my friend from three years old. That's when I met her. Um, and the rest of all my friends, um, the close network that I have were uh, friends from you know kindergarten and grade school. And I actually didn't ask. They offered. It was sincere. It wasn't, um, you know, sure, I'll do it. it. They would definitely do it for me. So it's, um, it's really meaningful and it really shows a true you know, attestation to our uh, friendship. That's really wonderful. I've talked a lot with different guests on the podcast about how when they get diagnosed, you know, some people really kind of come out of the woodwork and and are so supportive. But it sounds like in this case, I mean, you're tr- these women are just incredible and it, you're so lucky to have them in your life. Yes. So let's go back. So you made the decision to have a mastectomy. What about reconstruction? So, and that's the thing, there's so many choices and I, and I didn't realize, um, you know, of course, um, before, cause it takes a while for the genetic testing to come back. So initially what they had seen, um, in the, between all the images, between the mammograms, MRIs, it wasn't completely out of the window that we could maybe do a lumpectomy and radiation. Um, when it came back that I was positive, it was, um, highly recommended that I have a double mastectomy. So that was easy. And um, to be honest with you, I think if I had a choice of a lumpectomy versus the mastectomy, I still would have chosen the double mastectomy just because it's it's constant fear that there's going there's some cancer cell or something else lurking around. And so if you can, if that's where it started, I don't want it to ever come back. And so that was basically um, a solid decision that I, that I had made. And again, it was, um, you know, obviously uh, reinforced with um, having the mutation of the BRCA gene. And um, as far as reconstruction goes, that was actually pretty difficult. Um, You know, between doing, um, there's all, you can do no construction, you can do implants, you can do abdominal flap surgery where they take your abdominal fat and uh, make breasts out of it. Again, with the support um, of how many uh, medical professionals we have in our family and as far as friends, the best decision I thought was going to be doing the flap surgery. Um, the, it's called the DIEP uh, flap surgery. Um, basically, they cut you from hip to hip, you know, uh, cut out a, a lot of your abdominal fat, what you have there, and um, recreate and mound breast uh, out of it. It's the most natural looking. Um, it's your own tissue, so obviously it um, it heals nicer. It's I would never have to go back for implant exchange. Um, so that did have a lot of benefits. So plus it would flatten your stomach. So it was, I was completely all for it. Knowing it'd be a longer recovery, I was still uh, interested in doing that. So um, that is the route that I took. 
the way that it happened, I had my um, double mastectomy on November 20th. And my plastic surgeon does a uh, delayed reconstruction. He basically likes um, having, I guess, like the arteries and vessels kind of engorge a little bit more in the abdominal area. And um, then he goes in and does the reconstruction three weeks later, which he did December 11th. The problem was I had a complication. I had a couple complications. The left breast took and the right breast did not take. So typically it was a planned six hour um, OR case and it ended up um, turning into 11 hours of um, trying to get the vessels to connect to my right breast. And I mean, he um, really tried all efforts. Every time he would get the vessels to connect, there would be no blood flow. Um, so then he had to basically do a plan B, um, which was to put a spacer underneath of the muscle of the breast that wouldn't take. And I'd have to go back in for more surgery. So, you know, I, I, I woke up um, from surgery and I, I recall that I, I knew that a really important piece of this reconstructive surgery was making sure that um, your breast pulses were good um, and flowing appropriately. And um, I woke up in the recovery room and I look up and I see Kevin and my mom and the nurse is only doing um, an ultrasound, like a, a Doppler check on the one breast. And I look up at my mom and I said, how come she's only doing one side? And my mom was like, oh my gosh, how, like, aren't you still snowed from anesthesia? Why do you know? And I'm like, no, but she, well, she's not checking this breast. And, you know, and my mom was like, I was going to wait to tell you till tomorrow, but things didn't work out that well. So, um, so that was a disappointment. Um, again, I did have a couple of complications and the complications, they weren't in the plan. Um, you know, and again, like I said, anytime there's a problem, there's a solution, but I really wasn't expecting, um, the complications that I had. And again, um, I would say that the, the breast surgery was the first complication, uh, with the right breast not taking. And then again, um, like I said, I, they do the incision and basically it's hip to hip and, um, you're supposed to kind of stay low key and not move too much and no lifting, pushing or pulling, which I really wasn't doing, but, um, Unfortunately, I guess I overexerted myself and I um, split my um, the center of the incision so bad that it required uh, debridement once a week. They wanted to put a wound back on, oh, no. and I was completely against that. I'm like, please, I'll I'll just do the um, packing, and on top of that, you have these you know drains dangling everywhere, and so that was definitely something um, that I uh, wasn't planning for. Got through it. And how was the effect on? of the mastectomy of the wounds and the reconstruction on your body image a lot um and i you know i i feel like i um i i try to be optimistic i have a you know good sense of humor as a matter of fact they do nipple tattooing and so i had my uh nipple um tattooing done today and i was sharing some of my stories with her and you know i would laugh because i needed help in the shower and when i you know was getting in the shower and i had these tubes hanging i would always sing that song because i'm sexy and i know it i mean it was just if you didn't laugh you were um really gonna cry i mean it was really um awful to look at it was painful, you know, mentally and physically. And just, you know, being stuck in your pajamas. And I mean, I really, even when I had to go out to doctor appointments, trying to hide the drains as best as you could and while trying to be comfortable. And it was, it wasn't easy. Did you work during this time? I didn't. Um, actually, I was out of work basically for almost uh, six months. 
yeah, I mean, basically with the open wounds and the type of work I do, um, I'd be exposed to way too much infection. Um, so it was recommended that I stay out of work. What did you do during that time? Because a lot of people struggle with, you know, working and then being at home and not really knowing what to do with themselves. Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely, definitely difficult for me to be home. Um, so I actually, um, I had um, my uh, future mother-in-law, she taught me how to knit. So I, <laughs> I took up the hobby of knitting and believe it or not, I really enjoyed it and um, I continue to enjoy it. So I actually, my first project, I made a, a really bad scar just to try to learn. And actually one of the nurse practitioners that took care of me uh, was pregnant at the time and I was determined to make her a baby blanket. I knew that would take a lot of time um, and I had to get it done obviously before she went out on maternity leave. So um, she did, she got her uh, baby blanket. That's awesome, uh, that's really cool. Any, do you watch any Netflix? I don't and it's interesting because everyone would say, oh, wait, you, know, you can binge watch this and that and I really do not watch TV. So um, that wasn't anything appealing to me. Reading, I, I definitely read um, some books, but um, I was really, really concentrated on doing the knitting. And it was nice because it's like instant gratification, you know, getting to see how much progress I would make and, um, you know, knowing I was doing something special for the nurse practitioner who I really, really enjoyed, um, who took care of me. Can you talk a little bit about the treatment choices after surgery? So did you talk about chemotherapy or anti-estrogen therapy? Yes. So, um, and again, not realizing um, how many factors play into this journey. Uh, there were so many situations that I was put in that just had you mind blown. Like, I can't believe I have to to decide, do I want chemo? Do I not want chemo? And basically there's a, a test they can do, something called an oncotype. Measures um, your risk of a reoccurring. I believe it's a low, intermediate, and high. And when I met with my oncologist, my onco score was 20. Um, at the time when we discussed this, the range was 0 to 19. So I barely fell into the intermediate category with a 20. And I was so upset because studies would show in December of 2018 that it would have been recommended because I fall into that intermediate category. And, you know, with the trust of my oncologist, I asked her, you know, if I was your daughter or if I was your sister what would you want me to do? Would you recommend chemo? And I'm, you know, I, I took her word and I, and her trust and her, um, obviously knowledge of, uh, oncology and she didn't recommend it. And those were my feelings all along too. I was scared to death of chemo and I wanted nothing to do with it. So her, um, affirmation that I would be okay with, you know, she would let one of her loved ones, uh, with an onco type of score of 20, um, you know, not get the chemo. So luckily enough, um, the following visit I had with her, there was the new, there was a new study and new data came out, um, making the numbers. I don't know if it was like zero to 21. So then I fell into now the low category. Now, so you didn't do the chemo. And then what happened after that? So with that, then I, um, was, uh, and I, I knew that I'd be on, um, basically, um, tamoxifen or an estrogen blocker for five years. Um, with the recommendations of obviously having um, my ovaries removed by the age of 40, and then I'd go on to a different drug um, called an aromatase inhibitor for the following five years. So a total of uh, 10 years of oral therapy. 
Um, I've been on the tamoxifen now um, a little bit over a year. And um, of course, everyone complains about tamoxifen. And uh, I put on 30 pounds, which I can't stand. Beginning, I did lose a lot of hair. Um, again, nothing in comparison to what could have happened to me. In December, I ended up having a, something um, with my having some abdominal pain, which ended up being a condition called epiploic appendagitis. And from that, then I got a blood clot in my right arm from the IV that was in. And um, my oncologist and I had talked because tamoxifen can um, exacerbate uh, blood clotting disorders. And uh, basically what we talked about is that um, I had to go off the tamoxifen for a little bit until things calmed down. And we decided to, since I can't carry and I'm having a surrogate, that I'm going to move forward with the oophorectomy. Um, and I'm actually having it done May 2nd, um, which is way ahead of schedule. And what are your thoughts on this? Because you're going to become postmenopausal at a very young age. Right. And, um, it's, you know, I already have the hot flashes. I mean, um, from being on tomorrow. So, um, I think I'll be okay because I know what I'm going to be expecting. And to be honest with you, um, my previous surgeries, I really wasn't nervous for, I was, more let's just go in get this done and 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 move on and some thoughts that i've been having about this procedure coming up which is it's a very minor um procedure but i'm just praying to god that i don't have any complications because for some reason i enjoyed complications uh, with the breast cancer hopefully all the complications are long behind you and this is going to be smooth and easy yes yes and you mentioned that you did gain some weight can you talk about how you dealt with that and what are you trying to lose it and what your experience has been with with you know kind of health and lifestyle choices during this time it's interesting because of course you can blame anything for gaining weight losing weight and you know no I do not eat uh you know lettuce and apples and carrots and you know water I I do um obviously like to you know go out to dinner and and, you know enjoy drinks and What I've learned is I I know for a fact that tamoxifen has played a factor with with my weight. Um, Even when I was going through everything, it wasn't until I started taking the medicine in February that I substantially put on 30 pounds. And interestingly enough, when I was doing the fertility, uh, you can't take tamoxifen, so you're off the tamoxifen. And any time I go off of tamoxifen, even for this recent blood clot that I had, right away, I get on the scale every day and um, I'll be down... If I'm off the tamoxifen for five days, I'm down five pounds. It's mm-hmm. really, really crazy um, how it works, but it does. And um, now I, because I used to be upset. I mean, I'll look at, at pictures. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my face looks so fat. It's, it's so superficial of me. But um, it's just not how I used to be. And um, But now, you know, when I look at pictures and I just think that this is what I have to do. So, you know, I know I'm not eating myself to, you know, gluttony and it's because of the medication and, and that's out of my hand. And so I'm happy and unfortunately, um, you know, I'll stick to one pieces instead of two pieces <laughs> for bathing suits. I think every, most people nowadays, I think, I think they're back in style. One pieces yeah. anyway. So bikinis, no bikinis, no bikinis. Um, <laughs> but I actually think that's a really important point. You know, it's not you, it's the medication. So I think separating that is, is really important because a lot of people kind of internalize this and they feel guilty or they feel bad about themselves, but it has nothing to do with you. It's the medication. 
No, and, and like I said, I mean, I, um, you know, I'll eat healthy, I'll try to, you know, exercise, and and it's, I mean, anytime I was off of the tamoxifen, which I did take a couple of breaks, like I said, for the fertility, um, and even for the uh, blood clot, um, it, the weight just comes off, and it's, it's crazy, because now what I am looking forward to, though, is, is going off of it after I have the oophrectomy, so I'm hoping I'll just sit on the couch and 30 pounds will fall off for <laughs> recovery. Another thing that comes up a lot, especially in younger women with breast cancer, is how you communicate with your network, right? So everyone wants to know how you're doing, how you're recovering, and it can get pretty exhausting to text all these people. How did you handle that? So many calls and and texts, and and they were all really appreciated. Um, The problem was, too, not having the, getting a secondhand story, basically. So for example, you know, I have two brothers and, um, you know, one would call the other and then the other would call, um, you know, my sister-in-law. And I'm like, that is not what happened today at the doctor's office. It was completely the wrong story. So, um, and it was hard to try to text people back um, if I was in a doctor's appointment because there were so many visits I did. Um, so there was actually, and I think there's a, a, a couple of different um, forums that you can go on, but I went on something called CaringBridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, dot com and I created a um, a page and it was amazing. It was therapeutic for me to uh, at the end of the day or whenever I needed to write a post, um, kind of inform people. And it was nice because um, anyone who was looking at it could also uh, comment, and it, it was great because you would see so much inspiration and you know there was a lot of humor in there too. So it was. Um, it was nice to receive those messages and um, that way they weren't bothering me with the text message and I could, I could really look and, you know, of course I, I knew um, and appreciated their love and support um, by looking at that page. It gives you the ability to respond to them when you feel, when you have time or you feel, you know, okay that day when you're not sleeping or resting or whatnot. Yeah, exactly. So now that, you know, you're done with the surgery, you're on the tamoxifen, what does life look like now? Do you feel that breast cancer is behind you or no? So I definitely have days where, um, let's just say, for example, I'm at work. And it's amazing because I almost feel like it was a bad dream that I lived for six months, you know, between um, obviously October till I went back to work on May 1st. And it's almost like something that I I don't want to think about, but it was obviously a, a big part of my life. I know that breast cancer is behind me, but I will say, um, you know, there's always that fear that, um, something is, you know, still lurking or, you know, what else is gonna, you know, come up or, um, you know, for example, I'll be in the shower and when you get breast reconstruction, um, there's a lot of scar tissue and, you know, over the months, of course it, you know, can kind of cluster and, and I mean, I, I, felt a salad mass um, this past December and I was beside myself and there's still a chance that you can have a breast cancer reoccurrence even though I had a double mastectomy and um, of course it was right around the holidays and and I was just upset and um, you know went to get it mammogrammed um, and ultrasounded and the radiologist came back in and said it's you have a solid mass and I was so upset I was like oh here we go again and of course, it's right before Christmas. Um, luckily, I was able to get a biopsy, and it was uh, nothing. It was um, just um, fat necrosis, which is common. Um, but in, until it's proven otherwise, um, they have to, 
you know, look into it. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, I would definitely say that it's, it's in the past, but it's still something that always, um, kind of will cross my mind, um, from time to time. And how do you handle that when it crosses your mind? Because a lot of people are fearful of recurrence, understandably so, but they sometimes are paralyzed by that fear. I guess just knowing that I'm doing everything that I possibly can. Um, you know, again, I'm, you know, taking the tamoxifen, I'm, I'm taking all the appropriate measures. Um, also, um, even when I was out um, for those six months, I got a routine colonoscopy, which um, obviously I don't have any uh, problems, but just uh, preventatively, um, um, because again, my dad's history and me now having this BRCA gene. So just trying to really stay on top of doing all the preventative measures that I can do. If you had any advice to give to someone who was newly diagnosed and going through this and making these decisions about fertility and breast surgery and reconstruction, what would you tell them? So I would um, definitely say try and stay organized was one of my biggest things. I um, had a three ring binder and that always um, went with me to all my appointments. That was really helpful. Um, I had all my doctor's test results, CDs, contact information. There's so many times that you have to call, whether it's for paperwork for the state, paperwork for, um, you know, disability. Certain doctors would want to see the images from a study I had done. And so always having that and being organized kind of keeps you in line with everything that's going on. I would say it's going to be okay, obviously. And, um, you know, in the beginning, I would cry so much. And, um, but um, over the time, like, I really feel like you realize uh, you need to be strong and you can do anything you put your mind to. Um, nothing's impossible and just to never give up. The other thing, too, is um, I would also say that, uh, believe it or not, I promise there is a silver lining to every situation. Uh, having a double mastectomy, um, I was um, I'm obviously pretty well reconstructed, um, so much so that um, I don't have to wear a bra. Um, there is always a silver lining. Very often, yeah. I mean, I, um, you know, since I've had this reconstruction, I can probably count maybe on my fingers the amount of times that I've uh, actually worn a bra. So that's a, it's um, a nice piece to not having that uh, layer of clothing on. It's very free. And Um, and a lot cheaper. It is, Bras are expensive. Yes, yes. Looking forward to not having any more uh, menstrual cycles, which will be nice uh, come May 2nd. I think, uh, of course, like, you know, again, everyone always judges their bodies and I've never had a flatter stomach, which is, uh, an amazing, um, part of, uh, the surgery reconstruction minus all the scars, but I love the positive spin on it. Cause you have to, right. You have to yeah. find the positive in, yep. in this whole, in this whole thing. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, Thank thanks you. for having me. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bridget today. I look forward to bringing you new and inspiring conversations every week with some amazing women. So I hope you continue to stay tuned in. And as always, if you are loving the show, please take a moment to leave a rating and review over on iTunes as that is the best way to grow the show. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Duplinski for more cancer news, podcast news, updates, and all sorts of good stuff. You can also check out my website at www.interludecancerstories.com. Thank you again, and I will see you all next week.